Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Great to see you all out on this cold and wet and rainy night. It's very nice that you've made your way into this this excellent establishment for this evening. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, said Mark Antony. Men and women of Australia, said John Curtin. It's not a race. (laughs) It's like that movie, The Croods. The sooner we get there, the sooner we get there, said our current Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. So let's take his advice and begin. We're here tonight to celebrate great speechifying and oratory, which is going to come as a welcome respite after the long weeks of campaigning that we've all endured. And if you don't believe me, well, Google it, mate. Now, apologies if any of you are here hoping to catch sight of Lara Tingle. I'm not Lara Tingle from ABC TV. I'm Sarah Konoski from ABC Radio. <laughs> I was going to say, Lara is hosting an event for much better looking people down the hallway. But thankfully, we are here about the word, not the image this evening, and these three guests are going to knock your socks off. I have with me Sasanke Missamung, Rich, Richard Fader. I insulted. <laughs> I was referring to the audience, Sasanke, not the guests, and oh, Claire Wright. Okay. And what's going to happen is that each of these excellent speakers is going to share with you a speech from history that is significant to them, that exemplifies something about what it is that, gra- that makes great oratory. And then we'll have the chance for a chat together at the end. So we're going to start with Claire, Claire Wright, who is a historian, a broadcaster and author, professor of history at La Trobe University. And her latest book is Daughters, You Daughters of Freedom, the second instalment of her democracy trilogy. Claire, what speech are you going to bring us this evening? I'm going to bring to you a speech tonight that is not necessarily the best piece of oratory of all time, but I think it's incredibly historically significant and also very relevant to the time that we are here on election eve. This is a speech delivered by Vida Goldstein, who was the first woman in the world to stand for parliament here in Australia in 1903. So this is the first speech delivered by a woman standing for federal politics. So you say the first woman to stand for parliament in Australia? In Australia and also the world, because Australia was the first country in the world where women could both vote and stand for parliament. White women, that was. I was going to say not all women were included in that Act of 1902. That's right, the Franchise Act of 1902, which made Australian women the most fully enfranchised in the world, also deliberately excluded all Indigenous Australians from the federal vote. Where did Vida Goldstein proclaim this speech? She made this speech in Portland, in Victoria, which was her hometown. So she was by this stage living in Melbourne, but she decided to give it in Portland, and you'll see in the speech why. And did she, was she successful? She was not successful. The other reason that I wanted to give this speech was because Vida Goldstein ran as an independent. She ran, in, <laughs> she ran, in fact, for Parliament five times, and each time she was unsuccessful, uh, and each time she ran as an independent. And it was, it was claimed at the time that had she have joined the Labor Party, which was the party she probably would have been most aligned to because of her policies, she would have definitely won. But she was, as we will see in the speech, absolutely against party politics. Is there anything else we should know, Claire, before you inhabit the spirit of Vida or Vida inhabits you? I think the only other thing that's worth saying is that the way that I have um, 
gotten this speech, it, it, there, it, it doesn't exist in any published form. It's not like you can go to a book of speeches and find this, unfortunately. This I uncovered through my historical research when I was writing You Daughters of Freedom, uh, and it exists because there was a journalist, a reporter for the Portland newspaper, the Portland Guardian, who was there that night, and the whole speech was essentially reported on, um, but in the third person. So she said this, and so it's in past tense and in the third person, and what I've done is transcribed it to make it first person and in the present tense. So there's, a, you know, a little bit of passing there and I've also shortened it because she spoke for 20 minutes and then she took questions for another 20 minutes and all the questions and answers are also in the newspaper. Uh, those were the days, eh? Um, and so because of the forum that we have tonight, I, I, I have abbreviated it, but I think you'll get the picture. Are there any points where the audience needs to be prepared to be shocked or mortified or catcalled? I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you do that yourself. But one thing I will say, I actually thought about, like, making a sign... Um, the way that they would report speeches in those days was to also report the audience response. So in square brackets, it says applause. <laughs> and so there are points at which there are applause. And I kind of thought I might like pull out a sign that goes applause and you could all break into applause. We'll see, where, we'll see how that works. Well, what I'm going to do now when, the, when this great evening is written down for posterity, this will be the point where there's a square bracket that says applause. So join me. <laughs> Now, as I said, this isn't the greatest piece of oratory of all time. It's not even my most favourite speech, but I think that it's appropriate. So I decided that I would wear my favourite speech, which I do think is a piece of oratory, great oratory. Um, this was given to me by my dear friend Lily Mooney for my birthday a week ago. It is the Julia Gillard's misogyny speech on an apron. <laughs> okay. So I'll just give you a bit of the background by the journalist um, who made these opening remarks. The meeting being one of the most enthusiastic and well-behaved ever seen in Portland. <laughs> the attendance was unusually large, the hall being filled to overflowing. Ladies predominated, but the opposite sex were well represented also. And the greatest attention was paid to the remarks of the fair speaker throughout, whilst applause and other marks of satisfaction were most frequent. With commendable punctuality, Miss Goldstein appeared on the platform. The audience loudly demonstrated her arrival by applause. <laughs> so then Councillor Davis, who was the chairman, made some opening remarks. The approaching federal election will be rendered unique throughout the Commonwealth, as it has been determined a woman should contest her right to equally share in the representation. I approve of the idea and trust such will be put to the test at the ballot box. You will have to remember that not only would the eyes of the Commonwealth be watching this movement, but those of all the world. Personally, I do not think there will be any great change in the voting. Hitherto, the father and brother have voted, and now it will be a household one, the wife voting with the husband and the sisters with the brothers. <laughs> I look upon woman in Parliament as a little leaven to sweeten the whole. Mm. So, in case I didn't set this up properly enough, this is also the first time Australian women can vote. So, uh, they got that right in 1902 with the Franchise Act, and this is 1903. So, the first time women in the world have gone to the ballot box. So, 
Ms Vida Goldstein, on rising, was met with loud applause. <laughs> she takes to the stage. The people of Portland all know why I've decided to open my campaign here, and I will only add that when that decision was announced, the people of Melbourne wanted to know why I was going to Portland, and even where Portland was, <laughs> and disappointment was felt that Melbourne had not been selected. The step I am taking is unique in the history of the world and may be called history-making in Australia. Portland is the place most connected with the early history of Australia and the honour, I have decided, of the first address of a woman candidate for a seat in Parliament by the joint franchise should be given to Portland. Applause. The idea of a woman candidate is so unusual in British dominions that to some it seems a revolutionary step. There have been women in Parliament in Great Britain, but they are there by hereditary right and in the interests of their landed property and naturally are not parallel cases. They take their seats and consider such quite proper to represent their vested interests. We have got beyond that idea and the right now is that of the franchise the modern right now of every sane law-abiding citizen, the government of the people, by the people, for the people, and which was secured in 1902 and which now is by man and woman for men and women. Hmm. So the old order passeth away and the old conditions for the Commonwealth of Australia changeth. The Australian nation has been the first to adopt that just democratic idea without respect to property. The Women's Federal Political Association has requested me to be nominated for the federal election, and after consideration, I have consented. I will have all the hard work of holding meetings to organise my campaign, and naturally have to start out greatly handicapped to the men candidates. I hold a deep-rooted principle that women should step out and assume her share of the responsibilities of the office. I know I must have those who believe in woman for home duties and such like against me, but I believe it is the duty of woman to take her share in the work to protect her interests and that she should take the deepest interest in political matters. Personally, I have no axe to grind, and if I desire a peaceful life, I should remain out of politics. <laughs> I believe, however, that woman should go in for some of these duties, not for self-interest, or the amount of money hanging to it, as so many men do, <laughs> but because it should be the duty of all to do the best they can for the state, one way or the other. I am convinced I could do my share if elected to Parliament, applause, and that expressions of opinion given on the floor of the House by woman will not be altogether valueless, applause. It used to be hard to get the ear of a Member of Parliament if you were not a voter, but now we have one. It is far different. There are many unjust laws on the statute books. For instance, the law of custodianship, in which the wife has no right to her children, and which the husband can will away, and the mother is absolutely without power to stop the taking away of her child. Do some of you now wonder we want a voice in making of the laws? If elected, I do not intend to ally myself with anyone. 
I am going on my own. <laughs> I do not approve of party government, as government on strict party lines is government by machinery. Hmm. One objection is that it must be my party right or wrong. Party organs, such as newspapers, are dangerous. <laughs> That's spontaneous applause, I will say. <laughs> the party arranges a platform and this is to be gone for blindly or as dictated to by the party organisations. I favour the public democratic principle to think for oneself and not to suffer the despotism of Russia. <laughs> wow. Regarding the fiscal question, I must confess to be a protectionist, although it would be more in my line to call myself a fiscal atheist. Women, children, duty, low wages, etc., are not ones which are troubled by the fiscal question. Over free trade and protection, I do not get keenly excited. I let the men get excited instead. <laughs> I am in favour of white Australia, but against the deportation of the poor Kanakas who have been brought to the state, and to deport them means in some cases death through intermarrying. They should not insist on the deportation. Having brought the Kanakas here, our people should be prepared to bear the consequences, but no more should be allowed in. These people have been civilised, Christianised, educated, and there is no reason to force them out. I am decidedly opposed to coloured people coming in. Those who are going for a white Australia are going bald-headed for it. Laughter. <laughs> I am rather wobbly on assisted immigration as I have seen a good deal of this since going to America, where I have seen 100,000 dumped down in New York to swell the labour market and give cheap labour. Yeah, I know, it's hard to applaud now, isn't mm. it? <laughs> Arbitration and conciliation have my support, as I believe it would stem endless trouble and loss and do away with the bitterness and distress of lockouts and strikes. The establishing of a federal capital and the building of a transcontinental railway, I am not in favour of. <laughs> Chiefly on account of the wild expense likely to be evolved. Loud applause. <laughs> <laughs> it is so seldom that I have such an opportunity to address a meeting like this that I cannot resist the temptation to speak to the women and impress upon you the necessity of using your power to secure your rights. And then the chairman concluded. They had been privileged to enjoy a thoroughly good night, he said, an educational intellectual treat, and the meeting should now close. All had enjoyed the evening and it should not be prolonged to weary the speaker. <laughs> His opinion was the speech had been highly educational and he could publicly say that if it was his vote, he would elect Miss Goldstein. She could rely upon having it. The motion was carried by the heartiest of acclamation. Ms Goldstein suitably acknowledged the compliment and moved a vote of thanks to the chairman, which terminated the meeting. At the close of the meeting, a number of ladies remained in the, ball, in the hall and tendered their congratulations to Ms Goldstein for her able and instructive remarks. So, Chairman Kanowski, I thank you for this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you, Claire. And 
thank you. I appreciate you not excising those remarks that we're mm -hmm. less comfortable with now. Mm -hmm. That's, I feel you did, you proved your historian stripes there, Claire, by not just refashioning Vida in our image. History is fascinating, isn't it? I mean, we have our heroes and we have them for reasons, but we absolutely have to recognise that people were people of their times and people in their own rights, and this is part of history too. It is, you cannot varnish it. I also think it's very clever for a speaker to actually have established a contract that when they say, I ins insist that you applause, everyone just agrees to applause. Yes. And that's a brilliant technique. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Moving forward. Richard Feidler. Hello, is, Sarah. Is best known as the sympathetic helpmate and trusted beautician of Sarah Konoski, <laughs> presenter of Conversations. <laughs> We occasionally let him out of the downstairs studio to write books. He is the author of Ghost Empire and co-author of Sagaland, A Journey into the Sagas of Iceland. And his most recent book is the wonderful The Golden Maze, a biography of Prague inspired by his experience of the city's 1989 Velvet Revolution. Hello, Richard. Hello, Sarah. All of that's true. I wish I had those duties. <laughs> they sound way more onerous than the ones I have currently, but I'd be up for that for sure. Hello. It's Prague that's inspired your choice tonight. Yes. What are you going to read for us? I'm going to read a speech uh, that was broadcast on TV by the nation's first democratic president after the Velvet Revolution of 1989. And the speaker is Václav Havel. People sometimes call him Vaclav because they see the C there as a C, but, but it, in Czech, the C without an accent on it is pronounced S, so it's like Václav, which is the Czech version of Wenceslas, actually. And he gave a speech after a week or so after he'd been inaugurated as president of the newly democratic nation. He was a writer and a dissident, and the story of writers and political power is not really a very good one. Often they've been handmaidens to dictators and very unpleasant people. But Václav Havel is the closest thing I think I have to a hero in my life. Mm. He was a brilliant, wonderful man, a writer of sharp, absurdist dramas, um, a really principled and honourable dissident, and he, suddenly this, this incredible thing happened in 1989. A cruel police state that had been in power for 40-odd years was overthrown by a largely peaceful revolution led by students, and suddenly they went from these awful geriatric apparatchiks up in Prague Castle to having this wonderful man, an absurdist playwright, as president. And it's, it's fair to say that we at the, in conversations know that you should never play a drinking game with Richard where you have to drink every time he says Václav Havel. Yeah. Because he, he gets a lot of mileage, old Havel. And on the third drink, I get teary and want to hug everyone. There's some and, swaying and starts to happen. Yeah, it's and awful. It's awful. You've recently back from Prague. How mm. different is the city today from the one you remember in oh, 1989? So different, so completely different. When I went there, I, I, I knew there was a revolution going on. I was performing in a, in a disgraceful comedy trio in London at the time, and uh, I had to wait for our theatre season to finish, so I got on a, a, a plane, went over there with uh, my girlfriend at the time, and, and not knowing what to expect uh, at all, uh, I couldn't book a hotel because... I spoke no Czech and they, people on the other end of the line spoke no, no English. So we showed up at the Grand Hotel Europa on Wenceslas Square. All the staff at the front desk were, I now know, <laughs> former operatives of the secret police, the STB, all wearing bright Obchonsky Fordham badges, which is, you know, Havel's new uh, movement to, for democracy because they knew how to bow to a, 
a master. They were astonishingly rude at the front desk of the Grand Hotel Europa, and it became like a sport with me and my girlfriend at the time. I'd go down to the front desk to this lady with some tightly permed hair and tons of blue eyeshadow, and I'd say, good morning, uh, can you tell me, is it possible for me to make uh, an international phone call from this hotel? No, it is completely impossible from here. <laughs> oh, oh uh, could you direct me somewhere in the city where I might be able to make an international phone call? You think I spend all my time finding out such things for people like you? <laughs> so this just became great fun. But the, that was just the front desk. The mood in the street was incredibly joyous. 40 years of misery, cruelty, secret police, um, distrust, poverty, grime, environmental, uh, ravaged, uh, ravaged environment that they'd suffered as a result of this weird turn for heavy industry. Had it all been sort of lifted? It was like, it was like a... It was like the spell of an evil wizard had suddenly been lifted from this city, and there was this overpowering theory of, uh, feeling of joy. As you say, I was back there just a month ago, and now it's full of there's some 300,000 Ukrainian refugees now in the Czech Republic. A great many of them are in Prague. They've been welcomed. Czech people know what it's like to have Russian tanks in your street, and Nazi tanks as well. There's enormous sympathy for Ukraine over there, and quite, they think that perhaps half a million of them will end up staying in, mm. in the Czech Republic. It's a much richer place. The beautiful, the grimy walk, the, the Royal Road, as they called it, down from Westchester Square to the Old Town Square is now full of cheap shops that sell absinthe and matryoshka dolls, even though they're Russian, and Franz Kafka tea tales, but, uh, tea tales, but not Franz Kafka's books, you know. Mm. Um, so there is that, and you just have to sort of go, uh, with all that. But the place is, 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 is more peaceful, it's, more, it's prosperous, and it's democratic. That's the most important thing. Will you be delivering the speech in its original check? Uh, yes, I shall. <laughs> <laughs> Please, make Richard Feiler and Vaclav Havel very <laughs> welcome. I think, I think Vaslev right. <laughs> needs to wear the misogyny speech. All right, but I think my head's too gigantic for that, so you're going to have to adjust that All for right. me, I'm afraid. Okay. All right. I, I, obviously, you haven't got a Vaslev apron of your own. No, I don't. Oh, okay. Yeah, no. Sadly, so I'm go. deprived of that. Here Thank you. you. Okay. All right. So... Tell me I look lovely. <laughs> Just for a bit of context of what this speech is, uh, this is the new president's New Year's Day speech. Every year, the president of Czechoslovakia, as it then was, would make a speech on national television. And in previous years, it had been the decrepit uh, uh, leader, the former leader, Gustav Husak, who was failing very visibly. Every year, his eyesight would get worse. Every year, the glasses he was reading from would get thicker and thicker till his eyes sort of became gi gigantic. <laughs> well, he was gone. And now it was Václav Havel. And you can see this on YouTube, the footage of this speech he made. Um, he looks uncomfortable, Havel. He's wearing the first suit he's ever worn in his life because he's kind of a hippie playwright. He's a friend of Frank Zappa's. And he's wearing like this sort of uncomfortable collar and a tie and his glasses are on. And you can see he's nervous and the camera's just a bit too close to him. And he's, 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 got, he's got a very low voice, very low voice. But he's not like a compelling speaker as such. But oh my God, his words... This speech was going around Prague at the time, and I saw it in translation, and I absolutely never forgot it. I've never heard a speech like it. This was delivered on national television on the 1st of January, 1990, by President Havel. My dear fellow citizens, for 40 years, you heard from my predecessors on this day, different variations on the same theme, how our country was flourishing, how many millions of tons of steel we produced, 
how happy we all were, how we trusted our government, and what bright perspectives were unfolding in front of us. I assume you did not propose me for this office so that I too would lie to you. <laughs> our country is not flourishing. The enormous creative and spiritual potential of our nations is not being used sensibly. Entire branches of industry are producing goods that are of no interest to anyone, while we are lacking the things we need. A state which calls itself a workers' state humiliates and exploits workers. Our obsolete economy is wasting the little energy we have available. A country that could once be proud of the educational level of its citizens spends so little now on education that it ranks today as 72nd in the world. We have polluted the soil, rivers and forests bequeathed to us by our ancestors. And we have today the most contaminated environment in Europe. Adults in our country die earlier than in most other European countries. Allow me a small personal observation. When I flew recently to Bratislava, I found some time during discussions to look out of the plane window. I saw the industrial complex of the Slovnast chemical factory and the giant Petrolka housing estate right behind it. The view was enough for me to understand that for decades, our statesmen and political leaders did not look or did not want to look out the windows of their planes. No study of statistics available to me would enable me to understand faster and better the situation in which we find ourselves. But all this is still not the main problem. The worst thing is that we live in a contaminated moral environment. We fell morally ill because we became used to saying something different from what we thought. We learned not to believe in anything, to ignore one another, to care only about ourselves. Concepts such as love, friendship, compassion, humility or forgiveness lost their depth and dimension. And for many of us, they represented only psychological peculiarities or they resembled gone astray greetings from ancient times, a little ridiculous in the era of computers and spaceships. Only a few of us were able to cry out loudly that the powers that be should not be all-powerful, and that the special farms which produce their ecologically pure and top-quality food just for them should send their produce to schools, children's homes and hospitals if our agriculture was unable to offer them to everyone. The previous regime, armed with its arrogant and intolerant ideology, reduced human beings to a force of production and nature to a force of production. In this, it attacked both their very substance and their mutual relationship. It reduced gifted and autonomous people, skillfully working in their own country, to the nuts and bolts of some monstrously huge, noisy and stinking machine, whose real meaning was not clear to anyone. It could do no more than slowly but inexorably wear out itself and all its nuts and bolts. When I talk about the contaminated moral atmosphere, I'm not talking just about the gentlemen who eat organic vegetables and who do not look out plane windows. I'm talking about all of us. 
We had all become used to the totalitarian system and accepted it as an unchangeable fact and thus helped to perpetuate it. In other words, none of us is just its victim. We are also its co-creators. Why do I say this? It would be very unreasonable to understand the sad legacy of the last 40 years as something bequeathed to us, something alien, given to us from some distant relative. On the contrary, we have to accept this legacy as a sin we committed against ourselves. If we accept it as such, we will understand that it is up to us all and up to us alone to do something about it. We cannot blame the previous rulers for everything, not only because it would be untrue, but also because it would blunt the duty that each of us faces today, namely the obligation to act independently, freely, reasonably and quickly. Let us not be mistaken. The best government in the world, the best parliament and the best president cannot achieve much on its own. And it would be wrong to expect a general remedy from them alone. Freedom and democracy include participation and therefore responsibility from us all. If we realise this, then all the horrors that our new democracy inherited will cease to appear so terrible. If we realise this, hope will return to our hearts. Fortunately, in the effort to rectify matters of common concern, we have something to lean on. The recent period, and in particular the last six weeks of our peaceful revolution, has shown the enormous human, moral and spiritual potential and the civic culture that slumbered in our society under the enforced mask of apathy. Whenever someone categorically claimed that we were this or that, I always objected. Society is a very mysterious creature, and it is unwise to trust only the face it presents to you. I am happy that I was not mistaken. Everywhere in the world, people wonder where those meek, humiliated, sceptical and seemingly cynical citizens of Czechoslovakia found the marvellous strength to shake the totalitarian yoke from their shoulders in several weeks and in a decent and peaceful way. And let us ask, where did the young people who never knew another system get their desire for truth, their love of free thought, their political ideas, their civic courage and civic prudence? How did it happen that their parents, the very generation that had been considered lost, joined them? How is it that so many people immediately knew what to do and none needed any advice or instruction. I think there are two main reasons for the hopeful face of our present situation. First of all, people are never just a product of the external world. They are also able to relate themselves to something superior, however systematically the external world tries to kill that ability in them. Secondly, the humanistic and democratic traditions about which there had been so much idle talk did, after all, slumber in the unconsciousness of our nations and ethnic minorities and were inconspicuously passed from one generation to another so that each of us could discover them at the right time and transform them into deeds. We had to pay, however, 
for our present freedom. Many citizens perished in jails in the 1950s. Many were executed. Thousands of human lives were destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of talented people were forced to leave the country. Those who defended the honour of our nations during the Second World War, those who rebelled against totalitarian rule, and those who simply managed to remain themselves and think freely, were all persecuted. We should not forget any of those who paid for our present freedom in one way or another. Independent courts should impartially consider the possible guilt of those who were responsible for the persecutions so that the truth about our recent past might be fully revealed. Let us teach ourselves and others that politics should be an expression of a desire to contribute to the happiness of the community rather than of a need to cheat or rape the community. Let us teach ourselves and others that politics cannot simply be the art of the possible, especially if this means the art of speculation, calculation, intrigue, secret deals and pragmatic manoeuvring, <laughs> but that it can also be the art of the impossible, that is the art of improving ourselves and the world. We are a small country, yet at one time, we were the spiritual crossroads of Europe. Is there a reason why we could not again become one? Would it not be another asset with which to repay the help of others that we are going to need? Our homegrown mafia, those who do not look out of the plane windows and those who eat specially fed pigs may still be around and at times may muddy the waters, but they are no longer our main enemy. Our main enemy today is our own bad traits indifference to the common good, vanity, personal ambition, selfishness, and rivalry. The main struggle will have to be fought on this field. There are free elections and an election campaign ahead of us. Let us not allow this struggle to dirty the so far clean face of our gentle revolution. Let us not allow the sympathies of the world, which we have won so fast, to be equally rapidly lost through our becoming entangled in the jungle of the skirmishes for power. Let us not allow the desire to serve oneself to bloom once again under the stately garb of the desire to serve the common good. It is not really important now which party, club or group prevails in the elections. The important thing is that the winners will be the best of us in the moral, civic, political and professional sense, regardless of their political affiliations. In conclusion, I would like to say that I want to be a president who will speak less and work more. <laughs> to be a president who will not only look out of the windows of his airplane, but who, first and foremost, will always be present among his fellow citizens and listen to them well. You may ask what kind of a republic I dream of. Let me reply. I dream of a republic independent, free and democratic, of a republic economically prosperous, and yet socially just. In short, of a humane republic that serves the individual and that therefore holds the hope that the individual will serve it in turn. Of a republic of well-rounded people because without such people, it is impossible to solve any of our problems, human, economic, ecological, social, or political. The most distinguished of my predecessors, President Tomasz Masaryk, opened his first speech as president with a quotation from the great Czech educator, Kamensky. Allow me to conclude my first speech with my own paraphrase 
of the same statement. People, your government has returned to you. Thank you. I'm not sure whether, whether it speaks more to Harvel's power or your gifts as an orator that we could mm. be held spellbound while you're wearing the apron. But somehow we forgot that visual mm. yeah. gag and we're, we're transported to the, the profundity and the human sympathy of that I feel like I should speech. be handing out chops to everyone now after that. Yes. <laughs> Democracy sausages. Democracy sausages, <laughs> indeed. I feel like there's a sort of, I don't know if this is just projection, but I feel a collective ennui in how far sentiments and speech-making like that feel from mm. our current political landscape. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I think, yes. Interestingly, I was so interested to hear Vita Goldstein's speech because Havel also did not believe in political parties. Mm. He just thought people ought to rock up and get elected as independents. Mm. But, you know, democracy is not pretty and... That just meant he became uh, uh, effectively a powerless person after the first elections because people did organise parties because, unfortunately, that's what you need, you seem to need in a democracy mm. in any case. But he always maintained this enormous moral authority while he was president. But then look at the moral authority of the Teal Independents who are running in this yeah. campaign and when you get enough of them, they're not a party, but they actually seem to be a political force in their own now, right. Claire and Richard, the apron of truth has passed <laughs> to Sasanke, who, although from what I heard backstage, her teenage daughter pays little heed to Sasanke's achievements, I am remarkably <laughs> impressed by Sasanke, Miss Simung. She's the author of two books, Always Another Country, a memoir of exile and home, and The Resurrection of Winnie Mandela. And she writes for a range of publications, including The New York Times, Al Jazeera, The Guardian and Newsweek. Sasanke, what are you going to share with us? Um, hi, everyone. Hi, Sarah. Um, I am going to share a speech called Ain't I a Woman by Sojourner Truth, who was um, a slave. She was born in 1797. Uh, she died. She lived a long, good long life, which was difficult in those times. So she died in 1883. And so she delivers this speech in uh, 1851. So about 50 years before, um, before um, Vida. Um, Vida. Um, and her speech is uh, given in the same kind of convention as, as, as the one that Claire read out. Um, there are no specific mentions of applause. Um, it is a paraphrased uh, speech that is committed to paper about 12 years after she's given the speech. But certainly there's, um, it's written up by newspapers, so there's, you know, insert here, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So a similar convention and a similar kind of moment in the United States. So it is a time when uh, there are both the um, movement for the abolition of slavery and the movement for the emancipation of women. Mm -hmm. And these two are coming together. And Sojourner, old Sojourner cannot read. She cannot write. She's mm -hmm. about 60 years old by the time she gives this um, speech, so she's, you know, she's been around. Um, she was a slave. Uh, first language is Dutch in New York, Whoa. Amsterdam, New York, right? Um, uh, and so, but has, has risen up in the movement because she is incredibly passionate, evangelical force. And she was a, a suffragette who believed that men and women needed to attain the vote together, unlike some of her African-American country. Exactly. So she's very forward-thinking. And part of why I 
chose this speech is because she, uh, you know, if you are a feminist today, you will hear the language of intersectionality everywhere. And it um, uh, confuses people and turns people off because it is one of those like highly technocratic words that we all use when we're talking about feminism. And it essentially means you can be many things at one time. And Sojourner Truth does that without ever using any fancy words. Mm -hmm. And I just love the fact that it's like a two minute speech also. Let, let's hear it. And I have my apron, the apron of truth. So this speech is delivered at the 1851 Women's Convention in Akron, Ohio. Well, children, where there is so much racket, there must be something out of kilter. I think that between the Negroes of the South and the women of the North, all this talking about rights, the, men, the white men will be in a fix pretty soon. <laughs> but what's all this here that we are talking about? That man over there says that women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches, and to have the best place everywhere. Nobody ever helps me into carriages, or over mud puddles, or gives me any best place, and ain't I a woman. Look at me, look at my arm. I have plowed, and planted, and gathered into barns, and no man could lead me, and ain't I a woman? I could work as much, and eat as much as a man when I could get it. And I could bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne 13 children and seen almost all of them sold off to slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief, no one but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? Then they talk about this thing in the head. What do they call it? And a member of the audience says, Intellect. Yeah, that's it, honey, intellect. What's that got to do with women's rights or Negroes? If my cup won't hold but a pint and yours holds a quart, wouldn't you be mean not to let me have my little half measure? And then that little man over there in black, he says, women can't have as much rights as men because Christ wasn't a woman. Where did your Christ come from? <laughs> Where did your Christ come from? From God and a woman. Man had nothing to do with Jesus. <laughs> if the first woman God ever made was strong enough to turn the world upside down all alone, these women together around here ought to be able to turn it back and get it right side up again. And we are asking to do it. And the men better let us. Obliged to you for hearing me. And now old Sojourner ain't got nothing more to say. Uh. <laughs> yeah. So Sanke, that was an amazing rendition of an amazing speech. Your parents were freedom fighters. 
in South Africa. Did you grow up with amazing oratory? Yes, I did. Far too much. Revolutionaries <laughs> talk too much. <laughs> Endless amounts of talking in the household that I grew up in. I was thinking about it when Richard was talking because, of course, Havel comes, uh, becomes president and, and delivers that speech. There's the Velvet Revolution. And six weeks later, Nelson Mandela is released mm. from, from, from prison it's in February time. 1990. It so it was an amazing time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. amazing time. So. And, I mean, what do you... I know that you've spoken about your caution about this idea that if we just understand each other's stories, that will bring about political change. What about speeches? Do we overemphasise the potential of a speech to change someone's mind? So I think that part of what's happening is that we are victims of this moment. And this is a moment of profound cynicism. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is an incredible power in speeches to cut through the noise. But it requires an environment in which we are prepared to listen to one another. And I think part of what has happened to the world, uh, not just um, us, is, is that... Um, Part of what Havel is, is talking about is playing itself out. So he's, he's making that speech about um, the dangers within us. He's making that speech about narcissism and the bad traits amongst us as people, which is what ultimately will defeat us. And he's doing that before Twitter. <laughs> right? And so what we have experienced is this hyper speed of information and noise and narcissism and, and everything that is amplified, I think, about this moment is part of why we all feel so exhausted. Mm -hmm. So I think that speeches have an incredible and profound power to make a difference. But the moment in which politicians represented a moral good um, feels like it is behind us mm -hmm. because of all this other noise that's around us. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's interesting the three of you chose speeches uh, that you might consider progressive if we just think of basic human rights as being progressive. But of course, there have been many famous, infamous speeches that are about inciting people to take terrible action. And maybe that's what speechifying more naturally lends itself to, is to the mob, to baying. I mean, is there a strength, Richard, in our democracy that maybe we're a bit loath to to listen to speechifying? I think Havel always saw that democracy was the best defence against some awful, stultifying, reductive, totalitarian thought system being sort of pressed down on people, where everyone is going to sit there and say, uh, as he says, think one thing and say another. That dreadful cynicism that you were talking about then comes to the fore. And what Havel is saying there, I think, is that we can't afford cynicism anymore. The, the country's wrecked. We're a, we're a mess. We're poor. Our rivers are disgusting. Our children, have been, our children have had to grow up watching our parents, their parents lie to the authorities. Um, it's, it's been so interesting. I was, we were talking beforehand, Sonka and I, about the similarities. Um, I, I don't know that much about the apartheid system, but what I do know about it, all of its features have all those elements of totalitarian cruelty. Ivan Klima, a writer in Prague, said that uh, communism, Soviet communism in his country was like a criminal anti-democratic conspiracy by one group uh, in the country against its citizens. And that sounds a hell of a lot like apartheid to me. Yeah. A conspiracy against the... anti-democratic conspiracy against the majority of its citizens. I think that, that systems like apartheid, uh, the totalitarianism of Eastern Europe uh, by the end uh, were easier to fight because the enemy became so clear. Mm. And I think what we are dealing with um, at the moment with um, 
many um, media outlets that we uh, cannot trust, um, with a decline in trust in uh, political personalities, uh, and at the same time, no choice but to believe in a political system, uh, leaves us in a really difficult and I think dangerous situation. So we have a system that we have no choice but to deal with because democracy is the least worst thing that you have, right? So you, it's gonna be very hard to find anyone who disagrees with democracy as a system. And yet everybody who inhabits that space mm. is somebody that we don't trust by virtue of the fact they inhabit that space. Mm. Mm. And that's a difficult, I think, mm. thing to deal with, which is why we have the teals, yeah. uh, which is why we have this surge of independence. And it's fascinating that this mm. mistrust mm. of parties is in fact a very, very old trend. So if anything, I feel like the speeches remind us that we have been here before, that there are no new ideas, there are new ways of saying it, but there are no new ideas. Well, I don't know, some of these ideas were new. The, the idea of women having the right to vote, in a sense, was at least new for the men who were hearing it. But Claire, how do you see this relationship between good oratory and good democracy? Well, I just wanted to make the point, um, firstly, on, on the back of that, that it's really important to remember that democracy is not a done deal. You don't get democracy and then, okay, job done, all fixed. Here, here. I mean, even in, to, the, to the extent about, you know, women in parliament, Vida Goldstein was the first woman who attempted to get into parliament. We didn't get one in Australia until 1943. But let's remember that since 1999, Australia's parliament has become less, not more representative of women. We've plunged mm. from 15th in the world to 57th on, on the scale of representation of women in parliament. Um, in in it, it, the, the United Arab Emirates went from having no women in its parliament to in 1997 to 50% representation now. And Australia is declining. So from 15th to 57th in the world in the, in, in the last 20 years. Um, we're, we're now behind Rwanda, Cuba, Nicaragua, Mexico, United Arab Emirates. And we like to think of ourselves as being, you know, as Vida said, educated, Christianized, civilized, all the, those years ago. So I think that we've always got to remember that democracy is hard work and it, re and it requires policing at its boundaries. And we have to constantly reassert the values that are important to us, like he was doing then. Mm. In a, 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 and, and that this, like tomorrow is a moment that we get to do that. And, and we also can kind of take for granted our right to vote now. I never take for granted my right to vote because I have studied too intimately the, the decades and decades, if not centuries, that women spent struggling to get those rights. You know, there's now a, a statue of Sojourner Truth in Central Park, along with uh, um, Susan B. Anthony and, Ameri and um, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the, the, the three women who are most um, known for their suffrage activities in, in America, there's no statue of Ida Goldstein, who was the leader of the suffrage movement in Australia, who met President Roosevelt in the White House in 1902 at the first International Women's Suffrage Convention in 1902. So we, we forget about our own democratic history, yes. and we do that at our peril because we can take for granted these things. Now, to your actual question about <laughs> democracy and oratory, now that I can get off my stump, giving my own stump speech, um, look, I, I think that there, is, uh, that there is a relationship between it, but we're not really seeing it now. Uh, I mean, we, uh, when was the last great political speech that you can, um, you know, was it 
Keating's Redfern address. Um, well, I guess the apron was the apron. The apron. I mean, yeah. obviously the apron. Yeah. But, you know, in a sense, funnily <laughs> enough, that was a speech off the bat that was essentially spontaneous. I mean, yes. Julia Gillard has talked about this. It was a reactive speech yep. to the fact that Abbott was being such a really bad word. <laughs> and, and, and so it wasn't, it wasn't written, it wasn't intentional, and if she had have been a leader, a prime minister, intending to make a speech about gender inequality, I doubt that's the speech she would have given. But I will say that she also had the capacity to give it. And one of the things that is startlingly missing from the current landscape is the capacity for oratory, mm. right? Like, neither one of these two guys is particularly articulate, right? Um, which I find really, really interesting. And there has been something about, like, this seeming race to the bottom um, of this election, like, right? It's just like, who can be the smallest target? Mm. And mm. one of the things that's so defining about these three speeches and about oratory in general is that when you make a speech, what you're trying to do is be as as soaring in your imagination, as inspiring as you can be. Because you get one shot at it, right? You've, you've got a stage and you've got a, a platform. And it's been very interesting to me watching this election. As someone who also comes from a place where voting was hard won. I remember voting mm. for Nelson Mandela in a, you know, it was the most exciting thing that I had ever done in my life. You know, that was the fight of our lives. So, so, so it's incredibly special to have the right to vote. Mm -hmm. But the, 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 the political process that we have seen over the last six weeks feels that it has um, been underwhelming and not up to the fantastic opportunity that presents itself to the people of this country who are so lucky. Mm -hmm. What a rich place. Mm -hmm. What a lucky, lucky group of people to be able to vote and then to have such diminished conversation. <laughs> Richard, do you think that Australian politicians are almost averse to sounding too eloquent? Is there almost like... Yeah, because Australians don't like it most of the time. That's the truth. That's one of the reasons why uh, no one wants to... There's a I think there's an inbuilt scepticism when there's soaring rhetoric that's not meeting a, a moment. Um, which is why, I mean, putting aside, of course, the great unfolding rhetorical majesty of you've got to have a go to get a go. Um, <laughs> I mean... Fair suck of the sauce bottle. That was, well, that's fair suck of the sauce bottle, yeah, and all of that. But, but, I, but I think Australians are kind of sceptical of that. They, 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 they distrust that. They, I think there's a... And, I, and part of me thinks that's a healthy thing too because we don't want a Napoleon. We don't want... Uh, uh, we don't, uh, by and large, Australians we don't want a Trump. We don't want we those don't, rallies. Don't but want there's Trump. an existential crisis. This is a moment mm. where we need soaring rhetoric because there is a climate disaster yeah. unfolding. Mm. And it's, it's interesting mm. that apart from the Greta Thunberg, your house is on fire speech, it hasn't led to the kind of speeches that civil rights movement led to or the suffragette movement. I wonder why that is. Why are they not great speeches of climate change? Because the climate change issue is long and drawn out. And it's when we have a thing like the bushfires that we suddenly go, oh, Christ, is it here? And we just don't have the leaders in the moment, as you say, to make that speech. And we should have had that speech mm. during those bushfires when we were really frightened. Mm. Uh, because that's when we really do need mm. inspiring rhetoric, is when we're frightened. 
and we need someone to call on, as Lincoln would have said, you know, the better angels of our nature. Mm. But, but, but what they do in those moments is what they actually want us to be is more frightened. So not to, mm. not to settle the nation down, not to feel that, that, there is, is, that the leaders have your back, and, but actually the political requirement is to make you more frightened, to worry about that Chinese ship that's just off the coast of... Albany that's been there for about six months, but we've only just noticed it because right now you need to be frightened. It's a Chinese ship off the coast of Albany. (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, what we all have to do now is symbolically take our own apron of truth and go forth into this great weekend of democracy sausage. But before I let you go and before we we thank our speakers, I want to leave you with one last phrase from the current orator we have in chief. Jenny has a way of clarifying things. <laughs> Tonight we can say the same as Sasanke, Richard and Claire. Join me in making them. Giving their gratitude. Thanks, Sarah. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.